we've met before. TRP? Or is it Terp? Like Terrapins? I don't know the college football landscape up there uh, north of the Mason-Dixon line. But I'm Eric, and let me just get out in front of this and say yes, absolutely. It's completely appropriate to give someone you've never met a standing ovation, especially a standing ovation in pajama pants from the comfort of your own home. And no, I don't think it's inappropriate that in a moment of exuberance, while also holding a cup of scalding hot coffee, that you accidentally spilled on your child's head to feel bad about it. I don't think you have to worry about that. That's okay. And I want to say, I gladly accept your praise. And also, Josh, aside here, are they normally this excited to hear from you? Or is this just about me? That's probably me. So, uh, like I was saying, Josh isn't here, and all of this is weird. But one of the best parts about it being weird is that you and I, we get to hang out. And normally that doesn't happen because you live in Maryland, and I live in Knoxville, Tennessee, where I am a psychotherapist specializing in marriage and family therapy. And I'm also an ordained Baptist minister, which is a fun combo at dinner parties where people don't know me very well. I can't really tell you how frequently it is that people suddenly need to go to the restroom and never come back and finish talking to me whenever they find that combination out. It's remarkable. I guess they're assuming that I'll either A, baptize them, or B, tell them their dad's never loved them. Ah, who am I kidding? They probably just have IBS. It's fine. It's a real thing that happens to people. So, where was I? Anyway, I'm Eric Minton. My wife's name is Lindsay. She's also a psychotherapist. We share a small therapy practice together in Knoxville. And we also share a five-year-old son named Finn, who's currently unemployed. And who the other day told me to get out of his room uh, because I had apparently ignored his working from home sign that he had put up two weeks into the quarantine when everything was cute and you were baking bread and I was thinking this was going to be kind of a short-term thing and his sign I failed to realize actually said Finn is working from home please do not interrupt parentheses unless you are my friend so when I barged into his room because at that point, I was interested in being a parent. Oh. <laughs> That's a joke. We don't know each other very well. I love having a son. But I went into his room, and I was greeted with, Hey, Dad, what are you doing in here? First time that's happened. Um, and I said, Well, you know, I just wanted to see what you were doing. And he said, Well, did you see the sign out front? I said, No, I missed it. He said, because it says, don't interrupt unless you are my friends. And here's the kicker. Dad, you are not my friend. So quarantine's going well for us, is what I'm saying. How's it been for you? I'll pause while you answer to the television where I can't hear you. I blinked because I always think it's funny when people don't talk and they blink into a camera. It's pretty interesting. Anyway. So I can't speak for y'all, but for me, the other day, I stared at my computer screen when it was open to my Facebook newsfeed for, and I'm not exaggerating to be funny, 25 minutes without moving, scrolling, or typing anything. 
because, and I think here, I was attempting to dismantle white supremacy with uh, a carefully crafted status update about my own complicity in perpetuating racism and systemic inequality. And I, I gotta be frank with you, the strangest thing happened after I finally wrote something about it and posted it. Nothing at all. Well, it's been great and I've enjoyed our time together. I'm just kidding. Uh, I actually think I went and rode bikes with my son and came home only to find out that white supremacy and the wholesale destruction of black bodies under the weight of a brutal economic infrastructure that frankly has enslaved and oppressed them for centuries had not in fact been defeated or canceled, as the teens say, by my Facebook post. Well, I, I actually shouldn't say nothing happened because I did ignore my spouse for 20 minutes in order to read that some people liked it or shared it or commented on it. But then later I just ate dinner and stayed up too late, like usual, and felt tired the next morning, which is like every other day at this point, right? Except that, the, for me at least, like the tension, the uneasiness maybe, that regularly and rightly builds up inside of me whenever I am brought face to face with the fundamental inequalities of our country had been somehow temporarily dissolved because I released that pressure by writing something about it on the internet for people to interact with. In the subsequent, what we would call an endorphin spike, accompanying both the positive and negative interactions on social media about white supremacy, I realized had been and were now way more interesting to me than the actual dismantling of the thing. Stop me if you've heard this before. It's like Facebook itself, rather than my interactions with other humans on Facebook or the conversation about really complex and important topics was somehow lost because of the medium of Facebook itself. And it was here, friends, that, can I call you friends? We're just meeting, I'm sorry, that was forward. And it was here that I was struck by how regularly this sort of thing happens to me on the internet. When, in a moment, that the pain inside me and you and all of us is finally made flesh when it becomes incarnate and has a name and a stubborn right to exist and moves into your neighborhood as Eugene Peterson once put it in his Bible translation The Message that all of us but myself in particular are given an implicit choice about whether or not I will notice and attend to the pain or if I'll ignore it. And sometimes, even if I attend to it, it's mostly done in an effort to get rid of the pain as quickly as possible. This is what happens to me on Facebook all of the time. Because of the world's complexity, I immediately write about it, usually uh, in other places, and then post it on Facebook. 
in hopes that in writing about it, that will have mean I've somehow done something about it. When in fact, all I've done is release the anxiety about the fact that I haven't actually done anything. In my work as a therapist, in almost every appointment with one of my patients, there is a moment where someone's pain leaks out what I like to call the service entrance. It's rarely a direct sort of utterance. And instead, it could be like a buried comment in the midst of something else, maybe about a fight at the Olive Garden or a quiet moment of reflection where someone is kind of trying to gather their thoughts and their kind of emotional dysregulation at the time. Or the casual way that some folks just kind of introduce some profoundly bracing traumatic experience that they've had and gone through as a human. And at that moment, I realize I have a choice as a professional that I can ask more questions and I can follow the pain all the way down. Or I can ignore it. And I can go back to having them tell me about someone cutting them off in heavy traffic on the way home from work because frankly, it's way easier for me to just let them do that. But friends, and I'm assuming it's, you said yes, I'm finding that the pain is always there just waiting on someone to notice it, to listen to it, to acknowledge it, see it, maybe. And so when I, when I choose, when you choose to sacrifice the necessary tension that builds up inside of all of us because of our contradictions and failings and frustrations and inherent hypocrisies, the ways that, in my case, I benefit from a profoundly unequal society. When I remember that much of what I have in life has very little to do with merit and very much more to do with the accident of my birth. You know, when we're dealing with the bric-a-brac and weird grayness of being a human right now. When I refuse to sit with the tension of all of that, to bear witness and witness to the pain as one of my favorite professors and authors, David Dark, says. That even in naming it on Facebook for the world to see, I'm mostly just branding for the sake of my own existential relief. I'm trying to get out from under it, is what I'm saying. So I, I can't speak for you, but for me, when I post about white supremacy on Facebook, I find that I'm doing so for the same reasons that when I used to work in churches as a pastor and conversations during what we call prayer time became too painful for all of us to bear. Like when someone's talking about how they can't pay the rent or how their uh, mom has cancer or how they just lost their job or they're losing custody. Something that's actually painful for humans and not just unspoken. It's like we're waiting on someone to lean in and bail us all out with, in my tradition. Well, let's just take that to the Lord. Because there is, again, like there's this moment. It's like a code almost at that point that says, I am profoundly uncomfortable. I feel a residual tension inside of me and I would like to resolve it very quickly and I'd like someone else to take it 
from here. And sometimes that someone else is God. And sometimes that someone else is Facebook. And sometimes those things are eerily the same thing, maybe? I don't know. But what I was saying before is that I use the word branding on purpose here because that's what our profiles on the internet are. They're brands. They're uncomplicated, black and white. They never waver or change their minds. They're always on the right side of history or on vacation or in a freshly vacuumed living room surrounded by well-watered houseplants. You definitely didn't kill for like the third time. They read big books about important things, but also, you know, love sweatpants and yoga. I can't speak for you, but again, like my, my brand says all the right things about all the right people in most of the right ways. You could say that the internet itself, especially social media, is just actual people pretending to be corporations and corporations pretending to be actual people branding loudly at one another. For what reason, I'm still not totally sure, but I think it has something to do with what social media has been doing to us and our democracy for years now, which is appealing to our worst selves and expecting those worst selves to make really difficult and important decisions and to be able to talk about complex topics in rational and functional and creative ways. Um, and frankly, friends, it's impossible to have that happen. Um, for instance, virtual reality inventor, which is something I wish was ever said about me, but I, I don't think it would ever even be said virtual reality user because I, I, I can barely get my phone to play music through Bluetooth. But anyway, virtual reality inventor and futurist Jaron Lanier famously made the point in his book, You Are Not a Gadget, which is amazing, that the internet in general and social media in particular serve to, in his words, kill human weirdness, right? It's amazing. And to standardize our humanity in order to make it more searchable by the web. He actually even has this point where he's arguing that targeted advertising isn't actually very good. It's just we start believing that it's working. So it's like saying to yourselves, yeah, oh yeah, no, no, no. Like I was just talking about that the other day and then boom, there it is. Bespoke slippers. Who knew I needed those? Exactly. But he's arguing that what happens because of the internet standardization, what he calls the standardized testing of the human soul because he compares the way that common core testing measures have turned education in the United States into just what is frankly one large test prep experience. And social media and the internet do the same things to all of us where we can't tell where we end and the targeted ad begins or where we end and the brand begins. I mean, how many Instagram people, I guess is the word, uh, are in their house, taking pictures of their house, but also referencing brands that they're using because they're sponsored to, I'm assuming here, live as a normal person and do their laundry with Borax. This is the world we live in. It's very confusing. But one of the things that's embedded in this 
idea is that the standardization and the ways in which the internet kind of appeal to the worst components of our selfhood is that it maximizes, again, the way that the pain manifests in us. Is that in our fears and our anxiety, it actually activates our amygdala or our fight or flight response that you learned about in seventh grade biology, where when we get into a situation that is stressful, and I don't know what you do with your time, but I'm a great indoorsman, but I use this metaphor a lot. And again, it's not, it doesn't speak to the truth or experience of my actual life because I'm not in the woods very frequently. But let's say hypothetically that you're in the woods and you're on a hike and you hear a bear. Your first response is never to think, now is that a black bear or a brown bear? And is it native to this region or has it moved? No, you, you run, you leave because you love being alive. And while you're running from the bear and you start hearing it behind you, you also don't suddenly look up at the stars and you say, you know, I read in a book the other day that humans are also made of stardust. No, you don't have time for Hood of the Thunderbird conversations. There's a bear behind you, but also is it a black bear or brown bear? Because that'll determine the speed. No, you're not thinking about any of these things. Because again, like your seventh grade biology teacher probably taught you, you didn't take biology. So it's like a ninth grade thing. Anyway, certain things turn on, certain things turn off. One of the things that turns on is your focus. You become hyper-focused when you're in that fight or flight response. One of the things that turns off, you don't need to be able to process all that Mexican food you ate the night before. Your gastrointestinal issues, they're not flaring up when you're running from a bear because you're running from a bear and your body intrinsically knows this. One of the key things that turns off, though, when you are emotionally dysregulated is your higher level rational thought. Your creativity, your rationality, the things that make you arguably who you are as a person. Your thoughtfulness, your intelligence, yourself, it kind of goes out the window. Because that's just essentially for the body's survival, that's just window dressing on the experience. And the problem with this is that when we're on the internet or when we're in line at Target and people are standing too close to us, even though it's very clear at this point, six feet is, is, is preferable to being alive, that we can't tell the difference between those two things. And so our body has a way of enacting that fight or flight response, especially when we're on the internet. And one of the ways that it narrows the scope is something that Julia Galef, in a TED talk that I, I really recommend you look up, talks about how some of us, like, we get into these mindsets where we become so emotionally dysregulated that our brain has this way of truncating the amount of information that it's able to take in. And so what it does is essentially takes in all of the information that already confirms to it what it believes to be true about the world. And she calls these two mindsets. One's a soldier mindset and one's a scout mindset. And she says oftentimes most of us are operating from what she calls a soldier mindset, which is in a rush when things are pinched and we feel under attack like a soldier would. We only look for information that confirms to us what we're already seeking. And so it's the way that we Google. It's the way that we find the article that tells us, yes, I was absolutely wanting to find out why my son's weird cough would mean he was dying because it's midnight and he's not asleep yet. Yes, that's all of my medical questions get the answers they seek, which is certain death when I Google them past midnight. 
So in the same way, the soldier mindset also disconfirms or takes in any kind of information that challenges its originally preconceived notion about things as an enemy. So even if that information is correct or helpful to the soldier mindset, when it is activated in that fight or flight, emotionally dysregulated state, it can't receive it as anything but something that is trying to hurt it. And so it will swat it away. And so she argues that most of us need to operate instead from what is called a scout mindset, according to her. And what it, it means is that we are constantly seeking out information that disconfirms what we believe to be true about the world in an effort to learn and participate as free-thinking humans who are trying again to understand how the world works. But, and here's the kicker, it's almost impossible if you are upset. And if there's one thing the internet does to keep people engaged in using its content is upset them. And so the scary thing about all of this is that Jaron Lanyang, again, argues that when a big movement, a big social movement happens in the world and people begin spreading this information in positive ways on the internet, that a thing called data maximization takes place where the algorithms that control what we see on the internet start test using all of this data that's out there in order to see, again, how it can be maximized and bought and sold to increase engagement in the mediums that we're using. So Twitter, Facebook, all these things. And so initially, it takes a little while for the algorithm to catch up. He argues about a week or 10 days. And so after that point, then there's good amounts of data in the system that tell the algorithm, oh, How's this, how can this content be used to really, sometimes again, it's not being nefarious, it's just doing what it's doing because its goal is engagement with Facebook or Twitter. So how can we use this information to get people super active on our mediums? And so in many ways it's saying, let's take the movement like the Arab Spring from 10 years ago, and let's use that to both enrage and empower people simultaneously. So that really at the end of the day, they're both staying plugged into Facebook which is frankly, friends, at the bottom, the ultimate goal. And so that means that every movement, every idea, every hashtag gets co-opted by the system whose ultimate goal is to emotionally dysregulate you so that you will keep using its medium to seek out the constant endorphin spike of saying, oh, someone commented on that, someone liked it. Oh, oh good, that means they like me. Instead of talking about the actual thing that you care about, which is, in, in my case, in this experience, dismantling white supremacy. Because at the bottom, the one thing we're missing when we interact with people on the internet is a face-to-face, flesh-and-blood encounter with a living person. And if there's anything that psychologists and researchers tell us, it's that without that, empathy dies. There's, and I want to be clear about this, there's no way to empathize with someone's social media There's not one way, and it's why people become publicly shamed with impunity on the internet for small mistakes, and sometimes really huge ones. But it's mostly because it's easy to scapegoat and pillory someone that we can't see, and that we have no remorse for because they're not actually a person in front of us. And so one of the most amazing reasons and things that I think the church can still do is something I like to call communionism. Not communism, so don't go viral with this, but communionism. 
which is simply the idea of sitting at a table together and having a meal and talking. Because when I was trying to figure out what the next right thing for me was in terms of my uh, Baptist and denominational fidelity, I moonlit as a Presbyterian for a little while. And one of the things that was confusing to me initially in the tradition is that you have to be approved to serve communion. So you got to go through the right steps, either as a pastor and take some tests, or uh, take some tests as a member, a functioning member of a church body, like an elder or deacon or something. And then once you've been approved, you can then serve the elements to people, like the bread and the wine. And I remember for whatever reason that this just, I had the hardest time with that. Because for me, at least in my mind, it felt like we were taking the one thing that Jesus is very clear about when he says, do this in remembrance of me. And it's like we finished that sentence with, do this in remembrance of me by checking everyone's credentials at the door before you let them sit with you and pass a cup and a plate around and talk about how God's doing a brand new thing in the world. But again, make sure that, that wouldn't, did they make at least a 75 on the test? No? Okay, they, get them out. No. I feel like that fundamentally misses the point. And again, like we end up talking about the interaction up here without getting down to like, what is this conversation about? And so if, if it's okay, I've been talking for 25 minutes now, and it's a sermon and I haven't even done this, this is the Bible. And so I'd like to read from you a little bit uh, from Luke's gospel in chapter 22, uh, that the title begins, Judas Betrays Jesus. And it's the story of the Last Supper. And so I'll start in verse 13 of chapter 22. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Let me repeat that again. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do, who would do this. And I read this next one for an important point. Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. In the Christian tradition, we are often introduced with a God who is profoundly angry and disappointed with us from the moment we are born because of just the simple fact that we exist, something we call original sin. And so there's this idea that we have to work off this sin by accepting the death of Jesus as an answer for that. But it doesn't replace the idea that inherently from our very birth 
God is disappointed with us. And that is a narrative that when people come into my office and they talk to me about therapy and they talk to me about where they've been and what they want from the world, they're working that idea off in their minds, even if they reject the entire Christian narrative. That something somewhere along the way is profoundly and fundamentally, like on a cellular level, disappointed with them. And then we meet in this story the night before in terms of my tradition and what I was introduced to, God killed the kid he actually liked instead of us, who he didn't really care all that much about and, you know, begrudgingly picked up from soccer practice. That right before that kid died, he knew he was going to be betrayed. He knew he was going to be sold out for political and economic reasons. And you know what he did? He put his hand right on the table with those who would betray him. And he did that anyway. He poured wine, he broke bread, and he sat at table with people who had been with him for three years and they still didn't understand. Even after he told them, one of you is going to totally sell me out. And then they were like, who's the greatest, Jesus? Which one of us is like totally the best at this? I mean, the tone deafness of the room is remarkable. We are a part of a tradition that when the world is at each other's throats, we serve a God who fires up a table, pours wine, breaks bread, and says if someone has to die to bring peace to this place, it won't be another scapegoat. It'll be me. We serve a God who dies for the world without expecting the world to return the favor. Now that is something worth talking about so that I'm inspired, I'm commanded, I'm encouraged to do that in remembrance of a man whom I betrayed and who still set his hand on the table with me anyway. So that when I get on the internet, and I have the impulse to sacrifice other humans on the altar of my righteous indignation, of my soldier mentality, because I'm so emotionally dysregulated by the state of our world that I will put to death anyone who disagrees with me. Because fundamentally, I'm scared. I am reminded that I serve a God who dies for the world instead of putting other people to death. And frankly, I serve a God who, when that God is put to death by us, shows up again and again and again. The resurrection isn't just this weird mystical belief, like what people rub on, on you know, their kids when they're sick in the middle of the night. The resurrection is a radical act of believing that even the deadest things, the things that are like were most meaningful to you, that were taken away unfairly, that even those things can come back to life. If we are willing to break bread and pour wine together, that even our fracturing and hemorrhaging and metastasizing democracy can come back together. 
if we are willing to get off of the internet and sit around a table within reason about six feet apart from each other, probably wearing masks unless you're outside, okay? And pour wine and break bread and understand that all of us have sold each other out for political reasons and for money, frankly. And that we're all just bickering about who's the greatest. And then at, at the end of the day, we've all got blood on our hands. And so the answer to this isn't in more articles that we share or more retweets, I can't even say it, or more, or more posts or any of it. It's about sitting down across from someone who disagrees with us and breaking bread and pouring wine in the name of a God who dies for the world instead of putting the world to death. Because friends, I still naively believe that when we can calm ourselves down, that all sorts of creativity comes back to us. That when we can see another person across from us, that all sorts of empathy comes back to us. That when we can return to the world, the world will return to us. It's been a gift to sit in my own living room and talk to my computer with you. And I think you can send all tax-deductible donations to my website that is... I'm just kidding. I had to get one more joke that wasn't funny. No. TRP, it's been a gift. I love you, and I don't even know you that well. Thanks.